Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. quick before we get the show started, I want to share with you something that we're really excited about. Mike and I launched Principles of Program Design just about two years ago. And since then, we've been working really hard on building more and more content. And we're finally ready to release some of that great new stuff. We're having a updated version of our original online foundations course where we've added three new bonus chapters. We've also updated our live course. And we're going to be doing that in April at Scale of Strength in Massachusetts. We also have three brand new online courses, including our exercise coach course, where we teach you our belt system of how we progress and regress and coach exercises, as well as group mastery, where Mike shares his systems for how he implements his successful group fitness training programs up at Skill of Strength, as well as something called Primed, where we teach you about programming warmups And then in addition to that, we're also launching a virtual mentorship where we're going to work hands-on with a select handful of coaches and trainers working with you every week on how to develop the best systems and programs to build a successful career. And then in addition to that, we're putting together a free ebook as well as a supporting webinar where we're going to give you our top 10 tips to a successful career in the fitness industry. We're going to share with you our secrets and our systems that we use that have helped us open up our facilities, as well as speak around the world and work with some of the best athletes uh, out there. And so to get more information on all of this, go to principleswebinar.com and you can find out about all the new and exciting stuff. Now, let's get ready to get started with the show. And away we go. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. We are at episode number 62, and I'm your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, we got another awesome show, another awesome guest today. Yeah, I uh, I was checking out the bio, which I, you know, I started last week and I haven't been able to get through because there is just so much on there. We have uh, an absolute brain on our hands, but no, honestly, um, I'm really excited about today's podcast. Um, we have a ton to learn and uh, I'm going to let you finish the bio because I'm I'm just getting ready to take a bunch of notes and soak it all in. So go ahead, Eric, and why don't you uh, finish up with our, with our guest here. Awesome. So we have Dr. Megan Helwig. She's a very sought out uh, doctor of physical therapy and she's out in Southern California, but she wasn't always out there as we'll get to in a minute. Uh, she started something called primal strength physical therapy 
out here in the East Coast and then packed up and followed her dream. And I, I, we were just talking before we went live that I wish that's part of my dream to follow her and get out there too in the sunshine. And she's got a great practice out there in, in San Diego area. She, she graduated with her doctorate in physical therapy from UMDNJ. So she's a native of Morris County, New Jersey, a stone's throw away from where I am, where my old gym actually used to be, Mike. Um, actually earned a finance degree from Villanova. Um, and then she was, a, and while she was there, she was a starting goalie for all four years for division one, big East field hockey team. Um, and then while she was working in, in the city here in New York, she went to, to PT for an injury and that, that kind of changed everything. She, uh, uh, she was training for a half Ironman at the time and, and kind of took that passion on and, and made a career change and never looked back. And so we're, we're very excited that she did. And we're, we're happy to have her on here. Dr. Helwig, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, so so let's jump jump right into the deep end of the pool, which we're actually going to get back to in a minute with how you use aquatics. No, no pun intended there, but um, talk to you talk to us about what you see is kind of like the current state of physical therapy, and like, are we on the right trajectory here, or kind of where where are your where are your thoughts on the current state of things? Um, well, partially the reason I have the practice I do is because I wanted to get away from the common insurance based practice where I felt like to have a practice insurance-based, you weren't getting the quality of care that you needed. Um, there was multiple patients an hour, um, aids being used, kind of that mill type setting. And I was like, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't how I want to treat my clients. Um, so I kind of got away from that and went the cash-based um, practice now. So I can be one-on-one. -on -one, I can do what I want. I'm not limited by insurance. So I still think some of the bigger practices may have their hands tied, if you'd say, with you know what they can do um, because insurance will dictate reimbursement. Um, so unfortunately, that still is an issue. And I think a lot of practitioners, a lot of the really good practitioners are like, all right, I'm out. Um, let me do what I love and you know be able to treat the whole client instead of someone coming in for a script that says shoulder and you can only treat the shoulder when you know that's not the underlying you know cause of what's coming in. So that was the basis of me um, branching out and the type of practice I have now. I know there's still certain states like Ohio finally just got direct access. Um, so now they can actually go directly to a PT without a referral in there where we've had that in California, we've had it in New Jersey. Um, another downside, I mean, I it's a quality of life thing out here. So California, I can't dry needle. Um, New Jersey, I could, and then it was on hold. So state by state, unfortunately, the PTs can do different things. So, I mean, if I could drive over to Arizona, there's a lot more I can do in Arizona for my patients than I can do in California. Um, so, you know, it's still a battle, I think. I don't know if that will ever change in California, the way, you know, the practice Practice Act states we can't penetrate skin and it's an ongoing battle with, you know, acupuncture. So um, there are certain modalities that we can't do and not sure if that will ever change, but I know being in a cash-based practice, I can still, you know, treat the way I want to um, and not be limited by insurance companies. So, so question for you, um, you know, you said that you would never give someone something that you are not comfortable yourself with either. Now, how important is this for professionals, not only to be able to, to walk the walk, but walk the talk as well and, and be able to give them sort of firsthand advice and experience of, and of, of what this process is like and, and what these modalities are like. Can you sort of walk us through that process? I think the biggest thing is being an athlete myself, 
I know the frustrations and that's my practice. I deal most with athletes and I know what it's like to be sidelined. I know what it's like to try to train through an injury. Um, so that's something where I'm going to do everything possible to keep them doing what they love without, you know, harming them. It might not be the trajectory they want on the recovery. It might be a little slower. We might be in maintenance mode if it's in season or something we need to get through and they need to be able to participate. Um, but that's something where, and newly being postpartum, it's given me a whole other perspective now um, for all my mom and my athletes that I treat, you know, that's something where if I can't do it, if I don't feel comfortable with it, I'm not going to give it to them. So everything I do, everything in my practice, I've either experienced myself, I do it on a daily basis, I do it as part of my programming, um, so I understand what they're going through. And also they can't, you know, come back at me and be like, well, you can't even do it, why would I do it? So... Well, it's I love that. Yeah, I, I love that because it gives also a whole nother level of empathy, which I think is really powerful in, in what you do and being able to experience that and be able to share that with them, um, I think is powerful. So talk about how you can make that connection on a level beyond like, I'm just a person rubbing, heating, treating, doing something your knee, but I can actually connect with you. Uh, so there's something beyond just that, that transactional type of relationship. I mean, and when you said empathy, like that's, I think a lot of us practitioners, that's part of our personality. Um, and it's something where, you know, I take things to another level where I will actually go down those routes of emotional connections, uh, trauma, whatever was going on in their life during um, their injuries. So some people look at me, they're like, I don't know what you're doing, but I'll I'll change when I'm muscle testing and working on a client, I'll have them change their thoughts. I'll have them think about certain incidences in their life. I'll have them think about, you know, a trauma, a surgery, a scar. I'll have them touch the scar. Um, so I kind of tie everything in their life together and I find the results are actually a lot better. And, you know, they actually, there's a lot of emotional components that go in. I just had a client the other day, like in tears in my office, um, but they're all good tears, but it was stuff coming up from that. She never even thought could have been why she, her body was stiff, why she was moving the way she did. Um, but it all started around a certain trauma in her life. Um, so that's something where I've gone through stuff. I've had it myself once again, like certain, you know, relationships or other things in my life that injuries happened around those period of time. I had to address that too. Um, so I kind of take things to another level when it comes to injuries and, um, when they don't respond. So a lot of times when they don't respond to typical straightforward PT, that's when you have to dig deeper, um, and kind of dig into lifestyle, dig into sometimes the emotional component. And I always joke saying we're a therapist in more than one way. Um, and we are, and we kind of have to encompass that in their treatment. Okay, so you're now way off the rails of the traditional heat ultrasound massage, <laughs> like free coffee and cookie recipes. So talk to me about like the education process, whether it's something as simple as like um, biomechanical stuff, why they're saying like, why are you working on my ankle? My problem is my low back, or you're diving into much deeper stuff like you're talking about. Like talk to me about the education process to get them comfortable with that they can trust you along this journey. I think one of the things is when I'm working on them, I do a lot of test retest. Um, so every session for me is basically like an eval or a reeval. So say I have a client coming in, he was coming to me for, you know, pain in his shoulder while snatching. Um, 
And it was something where he just never thought it was going to get better. It was always painful. And something just wasn't making sense when I was on the, when he was on the table. So I was like, all right, I want you to think about your shoulder being a pain in the ass and it hurting and all this stuff and overhead, you know, testing was weak and painful. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense though. I was like, all right, I want you to picture. And we did some mental imagery of like hitting a perfect pain-free PR snatch and he locked in and it was strong and pain-free. So I'm like, if something can change that quickly, there has to be some other component to what, how his body's reacting. So it, I think of it more of a software issue, not a mechanical, you know, tissue issue. So then we changed all of his exercises where first he had to do that mental imagery of hitting that PR snatch. Cause he's like, I hate doing these little banded exercises or whatever it may be. I'm like, well, you have a negative attitude the whole time. And on the table, when I tested him, he was rock solid, pain-free. And he looked at me like, what the hell did you just do? Now it doesn't hurt when I do it that way. So then every day, all his exercises are running through that mental imagery of that perfect snatch. And then I got a video two days later of him hitting a PR snatch. Like, so it was more of his mindset was just the one big thing holding him back. And it was changing how his body was moving and performing. Um, so I think when you tie those together and they get that little buy-in on the table, like, wait, so I could do this. Okay. If you could do that pain-free on the table, now let's load it. If you can do it loaded, now let's transfer it over to the full activity in there. Um, so we just had to change his outlook. And so that's a lot of times what I do with my clients is, all right, we're changing thought process. We're changing, you know, how they're breathing while they're doing the exercise. We're changing, you know, pull on the skin of a scar. That was a huge trauma. And then it changes everything. Um, so it's fun to unravel when they see things lock in, they look at you like, what button did you just push? Um, and I'm like, all right, you just have to walk around holding that. No, um, it's one of those things where like, how can we reinforce these patterns? Cause so often the stuff that people come in with, if it wasn't a tr like a direct trauma or an injury, it's patterning. And how can we change the patterning? Um, so that's how I kind of look at things a little bit differently. And then they get that buy-in when all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I can do this pain-free. I'm like, okay, now we have to load it properly and get this to be your new normal. It's funny you say this, Mike, before you jump into your question, it just made me think of a story. Uh, when I was working with the Giants, I remember I had one of the guys, he's like, hey, can you show me some stuff? You, you know, I see some of the stuff you do with the other guys. And I showed him and I said, well, this one I, I, I can't have you do because it's something with your hip. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, see this. And I showed him something kind of like you're talking about this whole test retest experience. And I said, all right, try these two things. Now let's go back and recheck it. And all of a sudden he gets up. He's like, that thing's been bothering me for years. He goes, well, I don't know what just happened. Like, and he turned to me and the, the look he gave me was priceless. He goes, what are you? <laughs> and, and so I'm like, all I did was just change your movement is, is exactly like you said. I just, you just had some patterns that you've allowed to become like some bad behaviors that you're just leaning into now and you just don't even know it. They're, 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 they're just reactive and, and reflexive at this point. And that was exactly like when you said that one of the Giants players and you know my history a little bit and I was working with one of the players and it was all hip and ankle stuff going on and they did everything. Like the whole team was working on them. It ended up being the scar on the opposite shoulder from the season before. We went in, did some skin drag on the scar and I just taped the scar got him down in his three-point stance, and then he just locked in on everything. Where before, I was pushing a 300-pound guy over. Like, I shouldn't be able to push him over. That's his job to be in that position, you know? So it's like, we need to go back. So the biggest thing for me is, okay, history. Okay, I knew he had a surgery two years ago, but did we clean out how that affected that whole oblique chain? 
Um, and that was playing into it. So all these things keep coming to head when uh, you just brought that up. Of uh, you know, usually the Iderolf says it, it the the best. Where you think it is, it ain't right. You got to expand out. So. Yeah. And, and I think the hard part, um, especially with traditional physical therapy is how do you, there's no PT code for what you just talked about. There's no, like, how do you reimburse for that? Right. Because you know what they want to see, what the insurance companies want to see is you did something that we can bill for. And that's pretty much it. And you know, they're not even scratching the surface quite often of what really needs to be sort of, uh, discussed. And a lot of the times you mentioned, you mentioned therapy, um, you know, you're, you're a therapist in, in more ways than one. And, um, you know, as, as a strength and conditioning coach, let me tell you, um, we see that all the time as well. I mean, obviously different practice, but, uh, but anyway, so I, I think, you know, another expectation that people have when they go and see a clinician is they expect to lay on the table and the magic hands do what they do and they're going to be fixed. Right. And a lot of people, you know, sometimes that will be the case and other times, well, it really, really isn't that, but how important is it? Uh, to express the importance of patients taking personal responsibility and independence in the process of learning how to self-manage and fix themselves at some point. Yeah, I mean, partially with me being cash-based, like not all people have the means to be able to come in multiple times a week. Um, I'm not that traditional practice where it's three times a week for six weeks or whatever the scripts used to say back in the day. You know, for, so it's huge for me to educate. And I think one of the things is when I'm testing them on the table and we're doing these things, and when they learn some of it's a software issue combined with some mechanical or some tissue stuff, like you need to get the reps in for this to change the pattern. Um, if it's a new thing, it might happen sooner. If you just consistent for a couple of days, all of a sudden it might switch. But if this has been going on for years, um, I think the biggest thing is educating them. So when they see the big changes on the table, that's where I also look at them and I'm like, hey, if you want this to stick, if you want to feel like this, if you want to be lifting that 20, 30 more pounds, if you want to be taking things to the next level, you need to be doing these on a daily basis. And for me, I try to give it in little tidbits where maybe their homework is like two, three minutes, but like 10 times a day because they need to get the reps in. So I'm making it in a way that they could do it while they're sitting at their desk. They could do it, get up for 30 seconds and just repattern something. Or if they're doing a certain cycle, strength training and certain movements, I'm like, okay, on your recovery or when you're resting, you need to do these two movements before you step up to the barbell again. Or before you go through a certain movement, I need you to do this. I need you to think about these things or combine breathing with like whatever it may be. Um, I need to do it in little short segments. And I think that's where they get the buy-in. Um, if they have those windows of pain-free or they have those windows of moving better in the office, you want to replicate that it's on you guys now to get the reps in. I mean, and I still have some clients that are like, no, I'm just paying you to do it. I'm like, all right, if you need, you need to come in a lot more frequently then if we're going to get that done. And that goes back to <laughs> it's the going to cost you. <laughs> that goes back to their personality. Like as a practitioner, I need to read their personality in the beginning of the session and say, is this someone that's going to do the work or is this someone that's maybe a little lazy and just wants someone else to do it for them? And I'll approach that whole, you know, the whole session differently, depending on the type of personality of the client. All right. There's, we're going to circle back because there's a lot of gold in what you just said in those last, last two minutes. So first let's, let's go back to that progression of talking about how um, it's not good enough in your mind and, and, and rightfully so. And I'm glad you bring it up that we can't just make people what I call treatment table all-stars. Like you've, you've, you're the, the king or the queen of clamshells and TKEs, but yeah. you can't translate that on your feet. So talk about that, that you need to go beyond just the 
feeling good on the table. And that doesn't, that's just the scratching the surface that just op gives a crack in the window so we can run through it for the other stuff we really need to get to. Yeah. I mean, that's something where starting on the table and I try to educate them. This is passive. Like this is me assisting you through the movement. Now we need to be able to partially load it. So we might be on the floor doing it. We might be in quadruped, half kneel, getting up to standing and they have to own it as they go through, if they can, then we're progressing them up to full movements in the session. Um, but it's something of finding where that breaking point is in that progression um, and having them see it and feel it. Once they see it and feel it, feel it, they're more likely to be like, okay, I'm, now I understand why you want me on the floor doing a certain exercise versus loading and doing a certain exercise because you need to own it. Um, and there's sometimes where I have clients coming in, it's a straight up mobility thing. We're fighting against, you know, body mechanics, structure, whatever it is that, you know, how long has it been there and can we truly change it? But more often than not, there's some sort of software issue going on too. Um, so I like to, you know, educate them and clean it up as much as we can because sometimes our clients, like, they don't want to have surgery. I'm like, if you don't want to have surgery, we're going to have to do the best we can with what you have and there. And this is how we're going to do it. Now, I love that you keep bringing up the the, the balance and, and uh, continuum of, of software versus hardware. And that kind of leads into the discussion of mobility versus stability slash motor control. And what uh, I've seen personally, because I get a lot of the cases where they've, I've gone to physical therapy, I've gone to acupuncture, if I've gone everywhere, they can't figure me out. And then they come to me. And what I've noticed was a trend and that a lot of those people had motor control issues, they had software issues. And I and is part of the problem with that, that you think that so much of traditional PT is biased towards mobility. And that's why those people get missed that if it's not a mobility problem, it doesn't stick. Or they're the people that says, I feel great when I leave the chiropractor, or I leave the PT, but then it's back two days later. And that's why I got to go three times a week. And the same exact thing on my end. It's like people come in and I'm, I'm asking the questions then of like, okay, did they, and now I find I ask every patient, did they look at your breathing? Right. Because then looking at a lot of the traditional practices, they aren't looking at the foundation. If you don't look at the foundation and they come in with a knee or an ankle issue and they just do soft tissue around that area, then they give them exercises to load just that area. Is that area even the issue? And we know more often than not, that's just one symptom. And maybe it is because maybe they had injury there, but maybe we asked too, why was the injury there? Was there something already predisposed? Um, that was an issue. So I think one of the common problems, and it's hard because you have all these students coming out, they need to get their reps in at these practices. They are working with some of the older PTs that maybe are in a more traditional model in there. And you still, I have to say, you still can get some gems in those insurance-based practices. Cause sometimes they just want that stability of a certain type of practice and the benefits and all that that comes with you know, that type of practice, but more often than not, I see them treating the symptoms and not the underlying costs. Um, so that's something where I dig a little bit deeper and I end up getting a lot more of the more complicated cases that don't respond to traditional therapy because they've been, you know, just trying to put out the flames the whole time and not, you know, fixing or facilitating a change for the underlying cause. And to connect all the dots to what you were talking about on the psychological side, when the traditional therapy doesn't work, the therapy is generally not the one that gets blamed, right? It's often the patient. You're the, you're, there's a label of a failed patient. And now if you get slapped with that label, now it's like, well, I must be doing something wrong. There's something wrong with me when it's really not. And if they're lucky enough to find someone like yourself, then they can, they can see that it wasn't the case. But 
to they by the time they've gotten to you, they've probably gotten that label slapped on them a couple times, right? Of course. And, and then they're starting that whole cycle. If they're not doing what they love, they're frustrated. They're getting depressed because who knows? And, and for me, like if I can't train, it affects me, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, every single aspect. Um, and if there's someone that's like that, that hasn't been able to do what they love, you know, they start that negative cycle. And then you're having to peel off those layers when they come in, because then they have a fear factor too. They're scared to do anything because they're scared it's going to hurt. Um, so there's so many things aside from just putting out the flames that you're dealing with, um, when they come to see you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you mentioned putting out the flames and, and I think people just, uh, assume if the flame feels like it's put out, it's fixed. And I think that's one of the hardest things, uh, that we, we need to sort of, it's a tough conversation because a lot of people assume, well, if it feels better. You're it's good. better. Right. And it's the same thing with like, you know, with the range of motion thing, it's like, you know, you know, we work for FMS and we have a bunch of tools to fix a toe touch. Right. And I'm like, I can give you two martinis. Your toe touch will get better. I can give you three beers. Your toe touch will get better. I've got a bunch of ways to get your toe touch better, but we need to find a way that's going to keep it consistent. It's also going to cement it. So you have a consistent toe touch and therein lies a lot of the issues when it comes to doing a bunch of mobility work, but not adding in stuff that's going to allow us to, uh, you know, solidify or hit save on the documents. Um, but, um, you know, another question I have for you is, as you mentioned, you know, you tend to get a lot of these sort of tricky cases. One thing that I've found, and and, and I'm in the same boat is um, so many individuals and in, in it, it's more so young females that are, you know, very, very hypermobile. And um, they are absolutely shocked when I tell them that they don't need to stretch and that they don't need to, you know, crank on these tissues because everybody assumes that when you go to physical therapy, there's, there's, again, it's someone needs to do stretching. So how do we, how do we turn the tables on, on, on the conversation and talk more about stability and hypermobility and, and the bite and brighten scale? Let's, how do we educate people on that process? I mean, the biggest thing is they just, I always say you need to own it and you, you need to control it at all ranges. And that's where I have to give them the buy-in and take them to their extreme ranges. And they all of a sudden are holding their breath or they're compensating with something. Um, so it's one, the big buy-in of, Hey, if I want to do these things, I need to control it in all these ranges. And we start training in range. Um, I recently treated a contortionist who coming in, she would look like she, I mean, she was in a lot of pain. Um, but after just one session, we changed it and she was able to get almost full range. And now it's a matter of, okay, we need to strengthen again in these ranges. And she admitted, she's like, I was always just stretching, stretching all the time to do the tasks that she had to do for, that's what she did as a hobby and as a side gig kind of thing, um, not realizing she needed to train. And it's only been the past couple of years that she started strength, strength, strength training, um, heavily and it changed everything. Um, so I think that's something where in the office too, I show them how can they load and I will never give any passive stretching, um, to my hypermobile. Every kind of stretch is some kind of dynamic loaded, um, having to hold in certain ranges where, you know, you're contracting, you're going through breathing, you're doing some kind of dynamic range, um, but never any passive range in there. And then next, you Love know, it. they're shaking and they can hardly do it. And you're like, yeah, you need to own it. So. Absolutely. So we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit. So you're also an educator for rock tape. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, kinesio taping and some of the benefits of kinesio tape. 
Um, and this ties into some of the clients that I just talked about. Um, one of the biggest things I use tape for is that software reset. And for people listening, when I say software reset, that's kind of how our brain, you know, talks to the body and, you know, thinks about movement. So my one client coming in, we were having knee issues, but she had also had a double mastectomy. She had a hysterectomy. Um, from breast cancer. So there was a scars, lots of scars involved. And it ended up, if we just went in and touched part of the scars on the boob, everything locked in in her core, you know, but she was coming to me for knee pain. So I ended up to free up my hands while I'm testing. A lot of times in my office, when I'm working on a client, I might put a piece of tape on a certain part of their body. So it's like something's touching there. It's communicating to the brain. And then all of a sudden everything locked in. So for her, I ended up taping the scars on her boobs and that changed core. So then we went and started training core while the tape was on the scars and it changed everything. Um, so for me, I use it a ton for that neuro side, for that, you know, software reset side. But then, you know, I have my typical clients with pain. So I'm putting tape on an area that's painful because I think it, it feels better when the tape's on there, it feels supported. Um, I might be using it for the typical, you know, of someone has like a sprained ankle or a torn hamstring and there's bruising and swelling and use it for that. So there's lots of different uses. Um, and everyone kind of is like, oh, that tape the athletes wear. And I was like, yeah, well, there's a lot of different reasons why they could be wearing it. Um, so I think the fun part for me is the tape actually lets me get some buy-in with the clients and it reassures them that, hey, I'm still getting, it's almost like Megan's hands are still touching them, right? Because when we tested and I touched a certain area, they tested stronger. I put a piece of tape on, it still tests stronger. Then they go on their own way and start doing the homework and training and they're getting the reps in to change some of that software. All right, so a follow up on that. And um, I'm thinking of a new segment, Mike. Mike, remember on the Chappelle show, they had when keeping it real goes wrong. Like, so I'm thinking <laughs> when, when good things go wrong, like good modalities go wrong. So. The problem is, is you can buy tape at, at Dick's Sporting Goods, Megan, right? And then you got, you know, moms taping up their 12-year-olds because their elbow hurts from the Little League game. So talk about how that's really not good. I think that that's the, the problem is I've, and that just brings up a parent sending me an email or sending me a text message with a picture of them taping their son. And they put like 100% stretch and was just wrapping the crap out of the ankle. And I'm like, that's not how we use it. <laughs> All right. And so it's hard because anyone can buy it. Now, the way things have kind of shifted with rock tape, unfortunately, too, we're not teaching as much live anymore. So then people go to the internet and they try to look up taping and who knows what's posted there. You know, and the, the father that had called me, it ended up he Googled ankle taping for his kid and that's what he was copying. And it was someone 100% stretch. I'm like, that's going to irritate the skin. That kid's going to have like skin breakdown. He's trying to do like a strapping tape with a tape that stretches, which doesn't make sense. Um, so that's the hard part is like, how can we educate people and how can we get it out there? Um, but they're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to go buy it. They're going to Google. And luckily with rock tape, we did put QR codes on um, all the boxes. I think recently over the past years, because I helped film a ton of those videos where you could just scan the QR code on the box and it would go to a library of videos of how to. Um, so hopefully there's some of that out there where they actually get a good video. Um, so they're actually using it properly. Yeah, unfortunately for the poor kid with the skin burns, whose dad yeah. thought he was a physical therapist for the, for the day, uh, yeah. doesn't have, doesn't have the benefit of that. All right. So something else that, that you're, uh, 
a big proponent of, I joked about earlier, you're, you're a deep end fitness instructor. You're, you're big into aquatics. Tell us how you can utilize that in your practice. Um, well, I've been, I was a competitive swimmer my whole life. Um, when I was applying to colleges, I had my golf schools, my field hockey schools, and my swimming schools. I'm like, what sport am I going to play? Um, and I've just always been happy in the water. So that's something where moving out here a few years ago, I saw someone doing this at underwater torpedo league and deep end fitness. I'm like, Oh, I have to try that. Um, that's right up my alley. They're like doing Metcons in the water. Um, and then you get to go full blown wrestle with under uh, torpedo league underwater. Um, so that's something where in the past year, especially throughout my pregnancy, I was loving getting in the water. I wasn't, wasn't doing torpedo leak, um, while I was pregnant, but definitely doing all the other stuff. That's something where, you know, we do a ton on breath work and a huge thing that I work with, with every single client is breath work, um, and learning how to stay calm under pressure, learning how to, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and that's something where it translates perfectly in the water. You know, can I get underwater? Can I do a breath hold? Where's my head go? Why I'm doing these breath holds? Breath holds. Do I start getting anxious? Does my body get all tense? And then I, you know, can't perform. Um, so there's been a huge correlation for me and for clients getting in the water and pushing themselves, you know, some of my clients water alone scares the crap out of them. So there's a whole fear factor and another level that's playing into it. Um, but looking at some of the higher level athletes there of how can they find another modality that allows them to push their limits, you know, doesn't put a ton of strain on the body, meaning like we're not loading it in a sense where, you know, we're breaking down tissue and stuff, but we're doing something here that's pushing them in there. And how can that correlate over to when they're competing or when you're training in other you know, on land um, and there and working with your breath, staying calm, being able to push yourself. So it's something that, you know, I absolutely love. Um, and I, it's now being a mom, it's like, I have to find that balance of, okay, can I get in the water one or two times a month with the sessions and then also instruct a couple of times and then also make sure my husband can get his workouts in on those days. Um, so it's been a fun balancing act, but it's an amazing community because you get people from Marine Raiders to people going to Buds to like the Navy SEALs coming in, you get Olympic swimmers, you get CrossFit, you get deep sea, you know, free divers, you get so many, you get like the Padres coming in doing sessions, you have some of the Chargers, they would come in and do sessions. So all different types of athletes with like a common goal of working on pushing ourselves and working on, you know, breath and capacity. Hey everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. All right. So I want to circle back to the breath and capacity. So, but one more thing on the water. So it sounds a lot like, uh, like we were talking, we had Jeremy Lenicky on talking about blood flow restriction. And one of the benefits is you can get a lot more work without that mechanical loading. Is it kind of similar in that idea that I can get a lot more work in for the people who either can't do it, like these athletes are already pushed to the max in terms of their mechanical loading, or they just don't have the, 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 the physical capacity at this point. I, mean, I think both. So it depends on the type of loading. So depending on the athlete too, 
in there if they have any injuries or stuff, but we have to be mindful and think about modifications and if it's safe, how, what type of work are we doing? So a lot of the higher level athletes aren't coming into the big group sessions and they're doing private one-on-one -on -one sessions where we can really tailor um, the workouts and push it in a certain way that will benefit them in there. So thinking about, you know, a lot of people that are scared are not the swimmers um, and are worried of like, how am I gonna last for an hour or two session swimming? Like I drown. Meanwhile, if they're a sinker, as I jokingly say, like they might do great at the underwater dumbbell carries. So then you can start pushing, you know, breath hole capacity and CO2 tolerance with underwater dumbbell carries are a lot easier than thinking they're going to be swimming laps. Um, so there's different ways that we push them in there. We also think about mechanics. We think about swim technique to become more efficient in there. So then you can start pushing capacity more with more efficiency. Um, so it depends on the person coming in and what type of session we really do with them. All right, so now let's jump onto the breathing and you've mentioned it quite a, quite a bit, but I, I hope people understand that what you're talking about is not some one magical breathing technique or style or approach that, you know, in our course we talk about, I have a, a slide we talk about the wheel of breathing and talk about all these different styles depending on what it is that you're trying to create as an effect. Um, but the one thing that, that kind of lays the, the, the groundwork for all of it is using breathing as a window into people's autonomic nervous systems. Are they in that sympathetic flight or flight or in a more parasympathetic state? So talk about that and then how that progresses into pressurization or other things beyond that. And I think that's one of those things where every client that comes into my office, I'm asking, and if they've been one of those people that's gone to a bunch of different places and nothing's getting better, one I ask, has anyone looked at your breathing? Um, another question I ask all of my clients is, do they have a history of asthma? Do they have a history of anxiety? Um, do they have, you know, stomach issues, food sensitivities? All these things are going to change our subconscious breathing pattern. Um, are they constantly in fight or flight mode, like you said, and we're just trying to downregulate the system. So that, what they tell me kind of helps me to look at how they might compensate with breathing or how they might compensate with their movement patterns um, and where I'm going to focus on the type of breath biggest thing for me is restoring their foundational breathing pattern um, so we can tap into pelvic floor, core, spinal stabilizers, and just that midline foundation in there. Once they learn how to do that, then you can take it to the next level and learn how to, you know, stabilize. Can they still breathe while they move or do they end up holding their breath? How do they pressurize for their lifts or when they're just doing daily activities? Um, so it's something where every single client, we're going through foundational breathing first because so often they're like, oh, I belly breathe or you know, I don't even tell my clients I'm looking at their breathing. I have them standing and I'll be doing some perturbation stuff. And I was like, okay, take a breath in on the exhale. I'm going to push on you. Meanwhile, when I tell them to inhale, I'm actually looking at where they're, where they're breathing, where they're getting their breath. How are they compensating? Because when you put them on the table and you say, take a breath in now, they're like, oh crap, she's looking at how I breathe. And they usually change that foundational pattern in there. Um, and so most of my clients have never had their breathing looked at. And I think that's one of the downfalls of you know where maybe traditional PT is at is that should be the first thing we look at with everyone. That's the first thing we do when we were born. We just mess it up over the years. So like, how can we restore that? You know, we've all had trauma. We've all had to different extents. We all had you know stress or anxiety, um, and depending on to what extent, that could actually alter our patterns. Um, so that's where I take the breathing with every single client um, when they're coming in, and then you know, getting in the pool, can we then play around with what they're, what they're comfortable with? 
I'm laughing because I have a joke when we were talking about looking at some and assessing someone's natural breathing. I said, the best way to screw up your assessment is say, we're going to assess your breathing right now. <laughs> exactly. All right. So let's go back. I think the segment's going to catch on, Mike. We're keep where modalities go wrong. Uh, good things go wrong with modalities. So self-care, soft tissue work with mobilizations, with foam rollers, balls, whatever it is, became popularized, whether it's Kelly Surratt or people like yourself. If, if you go on, on Megan's uh, any of her, her social media, she has some awesome videos of all these self mobilizations and, and soft tissue stuff that you can do with foam rollers, balls, what have you. But where does that go wrong? Whether it's either the person that is just kind of placating or, or getting palliative relief from something that's a bigger issue that they're ignoring, or they're being just too flat out aggressive with it. Where, where do you see that get misinterpreted and, and done wrong? I think a lot of times the clients are like, okay, something hurts. I need to mash it out or I need to like work on that area. So a lot of times they're going to the symptom um, and then it's on me to try to educate people. Well, maybe that's just a symptom because of something else. What if we address something else? The other thing might go away, right? When we look at SFMA, we're cleaning up the non-painful dysfunctional areas first and then other stuff sometimes just falls into line. Um, so I always tell them if, hey, you know, if you do this a couple of times and you see no changes or it feels better for a little bit and it goes right back, that's not the issue, right? We need to look up and down the chain, or maybe we need to look at something more dynamic instead of, you know, a passive modality. And then I think the other thing we teach in a lot of our rock tape courses is, you know, the pressure and the rate that they use, the tools matter. Like we all have receptors in our tissue that communicate with our brain nonstop. So something going light and fast versus something going deep and mashing away sends two different signals to the brain. So everything with all my clients, we want to go back and say, well, why, why are we doing it? If you know why you're doing it, you're like, I want this tissue to relax. So I need deeper and slower pressure because it's a mobility issue. Go ahead. If it's tight because it's weak, we need to start strengthening it and rev it up. And then I'm going to do a different type of pressure. I'm going to do a different rate. Um, and then all of a sudden you see it relax but because I'm revving it up or strengthening it. Um, so biggest thing, when people are just mashing away, I'm like, well, have you had assessment yet? Do you know why your tissue or why you're moving the way you do? Like, I wish everyone would come in for a movement physical. Be like, hey, come in. We'll go through one session. We'll look and see, are you more of a stability issue? Is it more mobility? And then give you a customized, hey, when you warm up, you would do better with these type of movements or you would do better actually stretching and mashing away some of the tissue. Um, so I wish everyone would kind of go that route and say, Hey, I need my movement physical for the year or for the quarter, whatever it may be. And then they could have more customized, you know, plans, mobility plans, whatever it may be to address their issues. All right. So picking up on that. So talk a little bit about timing of when you use one versus the other. So, cause the other thing that's become obviously super popularized is the use of massage guns and everybody's got one and they're using percussion or vibration. So where would one be more useful, say, prior to activity or workout versus in recovery in the kind of continuum of the percussion of vibration versus more traditional mashing and rolling and so forth? I mean, depending on, I usually would go more percussion, vibration, kind of revving things up, priming the system, waking things up, going bottom of the feet, working your way up the chain. That's something, thinking of it as just like reconnecting the dots to the, the body, to the brain, getting them ready to move. Um, when you go and do some of that deeper mashing away, like you're letting things go. And for me, I always say timing and order matter. So if you're going to go and down regulate or do stuff to relax tissue, you better be doing something right after it to wake up the things that it was compensating for. 
right? Because then you're leaving yourself, like for me, I've had some of like, not my worst injuries, but big wake up calls. I had a back massage during Ironman training because my back was so tight. Such a good massage that I was on the ground in crippling pain by the time I got to my car because he took away everything my whole body was compensating with. Like, that's when I realized years ago, I'm like, all right, so getting these deeper massages, as long as you know your body, right? Like I'm the person that right after the massage is over, when they leave the room, I'm sitting there doing a little breathing core, bird dog, you know, quadruped, whatever it may be, waking up, glute bridges, just little things to rev up a lot of my bigger movers or stabilizers because more often than not, my back will compensate for other things. So I think the biggest thing is, you know, percussion, vibration, think of it as waking up the body, think of it as priming the system, thinking of it as like lubricating the tissue because it's gonna change the viscosity of hyaluron in our tissue and make it more um, water-like so our tissue will glide and slide better. So thinking it more on that warm-up side, you can do it afterwards too, if it's kind of like a recovery, but I would go more towards thinking of it as you're revving things up and getting ready to go and doing dynamic movement. And then afterwards you can kind of dig in and, you know, if you want to call it mash or down regulate the system and follow it up with some, you know, stability work. And so to, to take that a point further, when you think about some of the situations uh, that either we or you would encounter is setting up that tent or table prior to the big golf outing right and we're gonna we're gonna take somebody who's never moved all week and now we're gonna, we're gonna either do some new soft tissue work or try to, to stretch them in ranges that they never have been to before and then we want them to go out and swing a golf club with this new body that we're we may be setting them up for huge failure so timing is important in that scheme of things as well oh yeah because they might not, you might give them new range and they don't know how to control it. So then the brain's like, oh crap, I don't know what to do. I'm going to tighten things up. And next thing you know, they're going to be like, oh, I spasmed on like the fourth hole. Like my back, my neck didn't know what to do with this range, but they don't know that. They think they feel more limber and good, but maybe that tightness they had is a protective tightness in there. So there's so much to go into education. And then there's also the people that get stretched and they're like, I played great maybe they were a mobility issue and they just needed a little more range. It wasn't a protective tightness. So it's hard to say, you don't know which person when they come up to you and they want to get stretched or, Oh, it feels so good when you just stretch my hamstrings. Like some people need it. Other people definitely don't like go ahead and strengthen. Um, so that's the hard part where it comes back to education all the time or a good assessment in there. So, yeah. So, you know, one of the things I remember seeing this, and this was, uh, you know, a long time ago, but um, there was a kind of a local strength and conditioning coach that was at this time working with a bunch of uh, players for the Patriots. And they they would love, they'd line up. He'd, he'd bring them in on a, on a table and he'd seat belt them down and just crank on them, crank on them, crank on them. They thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I'm sitting there going, all right, this, I feel like this is a torn hip flexor or a torn hamstring waiting to happen because these guys are getting cranked, you know, into a range of motion that they've never even been to, not even thought about visiting. And then they're going to go try to, you know, sprint as hard as possible. Um, and, and that's a perfect example of a modality, you know, misapplied or, or gone wrong. You know, don't hear what we're not saying. We're not saying that static stretching is bad, but again, it goes to the timing. And I think that's just a big part of modalities in general is people, maybe they have the right idea about using a modality, but they have no idea when and, and the reasons why. And that's why I think you're, you're, we're all seeing a lot of the popularity of like guys on Huberman and Galpin and all those guys giving us these recommendations on like, well, if you're going to do an ice bath, 
here's when you should do an ice bath and here's why you should do an ice bath then versus just, let's just do ice baths. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a nice thing that we're seeing, but um, do you still have to educate even some of the best athletes out there on when and you know, why they should be using specific modalities? hundred percent. And it's like, normally they come to me and they're already doing most of the right, like their, their body's telling them what they need. They just weren't doing it in the right order to see it stick in there. And that's where the education comes in. Like you can still do this. You love this stretch because it feels good temporarily, but right after you're done, I like, I need you to load this, or I need you to fire up this like lateral line or whatever it may be, because your front line was compensating for your lateral line, whatever it may be. Um, so I let them still do the things that they that feels good as long as I know that the timing and order of when they're doing it will work for whatever their body needs in there. So it's a huge more education. So when I give home exercise programs, I pair things together. If you do this, if you want to call it release or mobilization, within 30 to 60 seconds of stopping that, I need you to go into some type of crawling, a load, whatever it may be and needing them to fire something up to pair them together. So a lot of my stuff is paired together. Um, and it makes me feel more confident too, when they go and they do this stuff, I'm not setting them up, you know, to go do something that their body's not ready for. So it's always order and timing, pairing things. And then they're like, okay, that makes sense. Where before they're like, yeah, it kind of felt good, but I didn't know why I had to keep doing it all the time. So. And I think it's also important what you also mentioned earlier about what we call them, you know, I forget what your term was, we call movement snacks that we give people to say, you know, I need you to do a little bit more frequently. And I give them the analogy, I say, look, a lot of the same brain centers where we learn movement or where we learn a language. If I gave you a one hour Spanish lesson once a week, you're never going to learn this language. But if you, you know, if you do language learning, you'll learn that you do these little 10, 20 minute lessons frequently. That's really the goal. And I said, I'm going to give it to you. I need it at least once a day. If you want to do it more than that, no one's ever come back and said, oh no, you made me move too well. I want my money back. Um, so, and that's the carrot also to say, let's say, yeah, I need you to do these things and I need you to hold off on running or certain things that they may be attached to to say, I'm going to give that back to you as soon as you can show me that you own this new movement. And the only way to get there faster is to do this more often. So like you said, I'd rather give them two things that they do 10 times a day than 20 things. Because if you give them if you give them two things, they'll do the two things. If you give them twenty, they'll do zero things, right? And so you hear the PTs complain about, oh, no one does their home exercise program. Well, don't give them twenty things, right? Don't give them a packet of like a staple of all these generic exercises. You have to get through three sets of ten of everything. Um, so, a hundred percent agree. It's it's frustrating, but if we give them the right things, you see the magic happen. So, that's where a good assessment and good, you know, us reading their personality and say, hey. One or two times a day, if you can do it five, great, 10, even better, depending on the person. I've had that backfire once where, and I learned my lesson where he needed to do a little scar mob on his shoulder before he went into some other stuff. He came in and his scar was like raw. I'm like, you weren't supposed to like rub it raw. He's like, but it worked so well the first few times. I figured if I did it more, it would get better faster. And I'm like, all right, there's certain personalities where, you know, if I think they're going to do it 500 times, I'm telling them once a day. Cause then maybe if they do five, I'm like, okay. So goes back to that client personality too. Yeah, no, it's uh, certain people will take it literally. You'll be like, just do a hundred of these. And they're yep. like, they come back. You're like, no, 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 I was just kidding. I've actually had clients that I accidentally put a typo in their program. It's like, <laughs> I was really sore. I'm like, let me see. Oh, that's, that's why yeah. <laughs> you did you know, <laughs> 45 times because of that typo. Um, but anyways, well, 
All right. So you've, you've definitely shared us, uh, shared with us so much knowledge today, but what do you got coming up in the next year in the remainder of 2023? And what do you got going on next year? So I am just actually, I'm back. I'm what, four, four and a half months postpartum right now. So I have a little cute four month old at home. Um, so getting back in the office, that's been a whole different, um, what would you say? Being that I'm the only one in my office, I don't have any other employees. It's just me. So when I'm not there, no one's here right now. Um, but back in the office three days a week, I've actually pivoted a little bit and I wouldn't say full pivot, but pivoting where I'm actually helping and doing coaching calls with other practitioners getting in. And they're like, how do you do what you do? Cause I realized when I was on the road teaching all the time and I'd be talking about certain case studies or certain things, they're like, well, how'd you know to go there? How'd you know to check the foot when it was this, how'd you know to check like their scar or something? And I always got practitioners asking me like, how'd you know? And it was hard for me in the beginning. Cause it was just like, I don't know. My intuition told me I needed to go somewhere else. How do you teach that? Um, so it's something that I've been doing a lot of coaching calls with, with helping other practitioners get their flow and, you know, their assessment and also a lot of personal trainers, other people wanting to dig a little bit deeper of knowing when's it in their scope and how can I help them versus when do I need to refer them out? Um, so I've been doing a lot of virtual, um, coaching calls on, on that aspect, which has been fun because I can do it from wherever. And I feel like I'm helping more people because if I can help them become better practitioners, um, and then I'm going to get back into more um, golf specific stuff where I still see all my other athletes, but golf has just been something I've always loved. Um, being an ex-golfer, my dad was a golf pro. Um, I just love working with the body in the golf swing and how can I optimize their body? So reaching out more to my network here um, and going down that avenue in the office. So have a nice little mix of virtual and then hopefully some of the teaching picks back up, but you know, that's out of my hands right now with some of the, what happened with COVID and things going online. So hopefully some live teaching will pick back up in the next year. Uh, and then speaking of virtual, bringing it for full circle, I know you're also doing some virtual consulting for, for patient care, um, which is completely outside of the normal realm of physical therapy, but it, it, it really um, shows to your ability to educate and, and get people really empowered, like we talked about earlier, instead of just laying on a table, like Mike said, and expecting you to fix them and being able to, to treat somebody anywhere in the world, you know, and during, you know, using means like this. And that's been the fun part. I mean, like during COVID, all my East coasters, when they realized they had to go online, they called me up. They're like, Hey, I have to go to PT and it's virtual now. Can I still see you? Um, so it was nice to see a bunch of my old clients faces during COVID. And then I'm like, Hey, you know what? You got to get creative. Like, yeah, I can't get my hands on in touch, but like if I have a client and they have someone else there and they're touching and as we're walking and talking through things, we've seen huge changes. Like I had a cricket player in India, um, in the middle of the night, we got up to do an assessment, like, and language barrier, everything, but we, we made it work. Um, so it's been the fun part of like, how can we educate? And a lot of times, I mean, some of my sessions, half of it's talking and educating. Um, and then next thing you know, they're moving better because we changed their approach or we changed their order of what they're doing right now. Um, so virtual assessments, virtual coaching, um, that's picked up a lot over the past year. Um, and I love it. I mean, you have to get more creative. Um, so sometimes your brain's going 500 miles an hour, even more, because you have this little barrier of the computer, um, and virtual, but it's still a lot of fun. So that's wow, another, that's great. That's awesome. And I appreciate, you know, everything you shared today, but, but also talking about these things and raising the bar of expectations, going back to our first question of where PTs at and raising the bar of expectations and showing other PTs that what the possibilities are out there. And then also from the patient's perspective, 
hopefully raising their expectations to say they don't just have to go to who's ever they're enlisted in the insurance and who's at the, at the local corner, that there are other options for them out there. So they don't end up being that failed patient. So it's, uh, I think it's powerful in a lot of ways and we appreciate you for that. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, thank you again for your time. And as always, we want to thank everyone for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.